This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey guys, welcome to The Remnant Radio. You're watching one of 19 episodes with Dr. Craig Keener, one of the preeminent Bible scholars on the planet, and we're talking about the Gospel of Mark. This is going to be an exciting episode. The connections that Dr. Keener put together while we were with him at Asbury Seminary, phenomenal. But man, it was an expensive trip to get all of us out there to film this content. But we want to give it to you for free. Well, we do want to give it to you for free, but... One of the ways that you can help offset the cost for this is by purchasing our home group material. Dawson, our researcher, has put together this material. There's a leader's guide. There is a participant's guide. So you you watch the video, you read the material, and then we walk you through. We have discussion questions that go along with it. It could be a huge blessing for you and your church. Yeah, and this would be perfect for tons of different mediums. Maybe you're a pastor uh, who's preaching through the Gospel of Mark, a home group leader, a Sunday school teacher. Uh, this would fit all of your needs. If you want to pick this up, there's a link in the description for the home group material. In addition to that, maybe you're out there and you don't lead any kind of group like that. Uh, Maybe you just want to contribute as a thank you to what we've put together here on Remnant. There's PayPal descriptions in the link of this video if you would like to uh, support us. So absolutely, click those links in the description, hit that subscribe button, and please enjoy this video with Dr. Craig Keener. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. We've got an exciting program today. We're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark. We've got Dr. Craig Keener, who's with us in studio. Uh, we're going to call you Craig out of request, but uh, you got to get the doctor on the front end of the interview. We're going to be discussing the Gospel of Mark. We're going to go through this as a series. Uh, you're, you're writing a commentary on the Gospel of Mark. How long have you been in that process? Um, a couple of years of, of additional research to the work that I'd already done before I was before I knew I was going to be writing this, and then uh, I have a few more years to go. Okay, so tell us tell us the, the general overview. What's the what's the point of the context of the book? Uh, what's the kind of overarching themes that we should be looking for as we're going through chapter by chapter through this? <clears throat> I think something I used to do. I mean, I didn't I didn't overwrite Mark completely with Matthew, but I used to read because i'd written a commentary on matthew Mm. and like 90 percent of the pericopes or paragraphs in in mark are also in matthew so i i had kind of read it in light of matthew and thought like well you know we already have this material elsewhere which is kind of augustine's approach (laughs) and some other some other church fathers but reading mark on its own is really dramatic because i think you know the the subsequent gospels they accustomed us to reading what a gospel is in a certain way. But Mark, he was writing first, and he was able to go his own way. Um, when he speaks of the beginning of the gospel, <clears throat> obviously, you know, he's starting at the beginning of his gospel also. But I think more important than that, the gospel, Paul actually tells us what it is in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus died for our sins, according Mm -hmm. to the scriptures, was buried, rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And so um, it's it's the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the the core of it. That's what was preached to everybody who became a follower of Jesus. 
But when it says according to the scriptures, that means there's a backstory. Amen. And and Mark is is actually when he says the beginning of the gospel, he's giving us some of the backstory. Um, he's tying it into the Old Testament part of the backstory, but he's also giving us the events that lead up to the cross and the resurrection. So once he finishes the passion narrative, you know, once Jesus is crucified, Mark comes to his you know the end of his gospel fairly quickly, but he's showing us how things inexorably led to the cross. And that's really the, some have described Mark's gospel as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. Hmm. Actually, a lot of scholars describe it that way. And that's probably a deliberate hyperbole, rhetorical overstatement, but for a real point, because, I mean, the whole gospel is oriented in that direction. And it's also in the in the process, it's oriented towards contrasting one idea of kingship, one idea of authority, the world's idea, with God's idea. Like like Paul talks about the uh, the heart of the gospel being the cross and weakness and foolishness in the eyes of people. That's uh that's kind of what the gospel of Mark is, because you have all this emphasis on the preaching of the kingdom at the beginning. And then you have this pseudo-king, Herod Antipas, in mm -hmm. Mark chapter 6. You come to the end of the gospel, and the king language is Jesus enthroned as king on the cross, crowned with thorns. Mm. Completely different idea, contrasting idea mm -hmm. from Herod Antipas. And... <sighs> The disciples, you know, the, the people who are who are arguing against Jesus, the the scribes, the Pharisees, ultimately the, the ones who wanted to do him in, the Sadducees, these are all elites. The crowds, the common people are following Jesus, especially in Galilee, but the elites don't get along with him. Hmm. And Jesus' disciples, who are who are nobodies, they're, they're they're not taken from the elites, they end up once, they, once they're thinking about the kingdom in the world's way, they end up thinking like the world. You know, the Messiah is mm. not going to suffer, Peter says. Mm -hmm. Or which of us is greatest? And Jesus has to say that don't, don't, don't seek authority the way the rulers of the Gentiles do. <clears throat> Instead, you follow my example the, the greatest is the servant, and I've come to lay down my life and, and to serve. So it's, it's, it's really otherworldly. It's really um, a challenge to the world's ways of thinking, mm -hmm. and, and it, it's focused on the cross. Okay. So, uh, so we talk about themes, and you, and you mentioned this really big overarching theme of kingdom and kingship, the way the world views it, the way versus the way the Christian views it, uh, and so so that's a huge overarching theme. I know before the show we were talking a little bit about uh, about discipleship as a theme. I'd love to explore that, and then some of the others. If uh, and so, here's a question. Is the kingdom, is the king and the kingdom, is that the number one overarching theme under which we have some subsidiary themes? Or would you say, you know what, there's just about seven or eight different themes? And and then my subsidiary question is, what are those other themes? <laughs> Maybe I'd say the theme is that 
is the crucified Messiah, the crucified King, that um, it's not just kingship in general, but, but the crucified King, the cross, and then that contrast with worldly conceptions, worldly expectations of the kingdom, which comes kind of to a head when Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, but then says, oh, you're not going to suffer, you're not going to die. So <clears throat> suffering is a major theme. But the major themes in Mark are all connected. Um, they're, they're all different sides of the same coin. I mean, discipleship, if you're going to follow the Messiah to the cross, where are you going? Mm -hmm. So Peter says, no, you're not going to suffer. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because throughout the gospel, Satan is the one who brings testing to Jesus. Satan is the one who takes the word of God, the message of the kingdom out of people's hearts. And Jesus says, you set your, your mind on worldly values rather than, than God's values. And then goes on to, to say what discipleship means. He calls all the people who are following him and says, if anyone wants to follow me, let them take up their cross and follow me. And he goes on to talk about how it's worth it. Jesus is worth everything. You need to be willing to die for him. Yeah. So with, with that, you, you mentioned in the that back section, uh, Jesus, you're not going to the cross, you know, uh, uh, the, the boat, like, I think it's, I don't know the exact verse. Michael knows all the verse addresses, but they're in the boat after he had feed, fed the 5,000 and he comes walking on the sea hops in the boat and they're freaked out, or maybe it's the yes. storm. And they're like, because they didn't understand the parable of, or not the parable mm -hmm. of, the, of, of why he had fed the 5,000. They didn't understand that he would provide for them and take care of them there. But now that they're in a different situation of danger and he's providing and taking care of them here and just really weird. But there seems to be this discon disconnect between what he knows and what they so, know. So stupid disciples. The, like yeah. Like, but, are, but do they seem extra stupid in Mark? Like, there's <laughs> a, there does seem to be an over, and some, some guys call it like the Markian secret. I think that's what they call the, 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 the messianic secret of Mark where they look at this text and the demons seem to know that he's the son of God. Yep. You know, uh, Mark tells you at the beginning, hey, this is the son, you know, and you have these chapters where they're like, this is the son of Mary. And they have these chapters where like, you know, whose who's son is this? And then they're saying, man, I, I don't get it. And he's sitting there telling them, like, what's the, what's the disconnect? And, and is that a major theme of the text of just dealing with ignorant people? Yeah, <clears throat> dealing with people like us. Yeah, amen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if we were there, we would have got it. Yeah, yeah chronological exactly. snobbery for sure. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that, well, and yeah, we have the advantage of being you know, after the text and seeing all these miracles in the text. And when it comes time for us to trust God, we're like, oh, what can we do? <laughs> like like the Israelites in the wilderness. I mean, that's how the disciples act, yeah. except, except not with deliberate rebellion. Uh, sometimes the Israelites in the wilderness did that. But, you know, Jesus has his enemies and then he has his disciples who are taking so long to get it. But you stop and think about it. Actually, would we have gotten it if we were in their shoes? Mm. Jesus is coming from a completely otherworldly perspective. I mean, he's, you've got people amazed with his miracles. And when his disciples are amazed with his miracles, after they've seen so many of them, he's like, where's your faith? But where it says Jesus is amazed is when he gets to Nazareth, his hometown, and it says he's amazed at their unbelief. unbelief. Yeah. I think it's 6-6 six, six or so. Mm. So... So one thing uh, I, I'm interested in too, because you, you've written a commentary on the book of Matthew and Matthew is just, 
and such and such scripture was fulfilled and such and such Mm -hmm. scripture was fulfilled. Mark does a lot less of that. He also has a way shorter gospel. And, uh, and so I know Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. What can you tell us about Mark's audience? And does that play into in any way why his gospel is so much shorter? It's only 16 chapters. And uh, is there any relation there? So what do you make of the brevity? And what can you tell us about the uh, authorship? Th- or sorry, uh, audience. I, th- I, th- I actually think Luke Acts was probably written to a primarily Gentile audience. And it's, you know, four times. Quite long. <laughs> yeah, the length of Mark, if you put Luke and Acts together. Uh, Mark is half the length of, of Matthew's gospel. I think part of that's because of scroll lengths, you know, there were standardized size scrolls. But I, I don't think it's so much as Gentile audience. Mark is writing first. There was no standard size for a gospel yet. And uh, in terms of his audience, though, it seems to be an audience that maybe needs to be reminded of persecution, maybe needs to be reminded that um, even, even the first disciples struggled to understand and there, there are a lot of debates, though, about, about the precise audience. Going with church tradition, you know, I, in the absence of clear factors to the contrary, I'd rather go with the traditions of the early church because, I mean, that's what classicists normally do with documents. They start mm-hmm. with the external evidence. We have, I think, really good external evidence. Not everybody agrees, but I think we have really good external evidence for the authorship. Um, for the audience, it's a bit later, but it makes sense that the audience may have been in Rome. People have also made arguments for Syria. Uh, the arguments for Galilee aren't usually accepted today. But um, And then there are traditions for Mark being in Alexandria. But I think the, the strongest case can be made for, for Rome, probably during or maybe a little bit more likely somewhat after Nero's persecution, starting around the year 64. And then the the climax of judgment, which goes beyond the story that Mark narrates, but it's predicted in 13.2 and 13.14 with the desecration of the temple. Um, Some people think that's written after 70. Um, I think I think probably a larger number of us think it's written before 70. I certainly think it's written before 70. So sometime in the mid to possibly late um, 60s of the first century. The reason I think it's written before 70 is because Mark doesn't, in contrast to Matthew and Luke, Mark doesn't really distinguish between the destruction of the temple and Jesus coming pretty close after it. It seems to me like Mark doesn't insist that it has to come immediately afterwards, but Mark is not cognizant of any sort of disconnect. Any sort of disconnect. Mm -hmm. Um, Which, I mean, when prophecies are given in the Old Testament as well, and, and people by the New Testament period would have been familiar with this for about seven centuries by this point, you have events often grouped together by the kind of event mm-hmm. rather than by, you know, how many years separate them. And so um, the judgment on Jerusalem, you know, and in Revelation, we can talk about the fall of Rome and so on, but they are foreshadowings 
or even even in the book of Acts from a literary standpoint, you've got um, Jewish people from every nation under heaven for the day of Pentecost. That's foreshadowing where where the book of Acts is going, you know, and then, then this first Gentile convert is from the uh, what was considered the southern ends of the earth from from an African kingdom of Meroe. Um, and then, yeah, the narrative goes on. I mean, Rome isn't the ends of the earth, but it's another foreshadowing of where the mission is going. And, mm. and I, I think we have a lot of foreshadowing, both in prophecies and in and in narrative. Mark foreshadows the cross all the way through. Yeah. Okay. So is it a, would you say, I've always heard that Mark is a Gentile audience. You say it was written for, you think, people in Rome. So Gentiles? <sighs> Well, there was a significant Jewish community in Rome. It's probably most often estimated at forty to 50,000. That's a guess. But around the year 49, the emperor Claudius expelled a lot of the Jewish community from Rome, and at least the Jewish Christians, the Messianic Jewish believers, had to leave. And so um, that would have been enforced until around 54. And by the time Paul gets there around the year 60, what we see in Acts 28 is that the Jewish community there is, you know, it's pretty far alienated from the Messianic believers. They've, they've been out of the synagogue for a while and things are, are kind of going on the, on their own. Um, so I, I wouldn't say it's all Gentiles, but Mark certainly has to keep in mind his, his Gentile audience, uh, the, the large number of Gentiles in his audience. Mark is very short it's we assume the first of the gospels written so one is is it the first gospel written and is mark trying to give us an anxiety attack by using the word immediately so frequently <laughs> um what's what's the purpose of that i mean you can read the gospel of mark in an hour and your heart could be racing at the end of it like you could think this entire event took place in a day i mean it obviously says the next day a couple of times but it does seem like that happens frequently yeah yeah, it's it's one of Mark's favorite words. It's very, very action-packed, pa um, very lively narrative. It'll keep readers engaged with it. He doesn't he doesn't slow down for as much teaching. He calls Jesus teacher all over the place, mm -hmm. but doesn't slow down as often to to recount the teachings. Whereas Matthew is just full of that. <clears throat> Papias, writing in the early second century, says that he received oral information from eyewitnesses and those who knew the eyewitnesses. Um, he speaks of the apostles. He calls them elders and apostles, and he names some of them. And then he, then he says uh, that he heard some of this from Aristion and John the Elder. Eusebius, who's telling us what, what Papias says, thinks that the, the John, the Apostle, and John the Elder are different. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in Papias' quote, they're both called elders mm -hmm. as well. And, and so I think John just was, you know, he lived long enough that he was, he was available to be uh, part of that. But anyway, um, just saying Papias heard this from people who heard this from the Apostles and maybe heard some of it from one of the longest living Apostles. So... Whenever in the early second century Papias is writing, he probably got a lot of this in the late first century. And what that means is that his report, what he says about Mark, what he says about Matthew, actually 
comes from within living memory of when the Gospels were written. He's probably writing after living memory of Jesus' own ministry, but living memory is usually considered about uh, 40 to, to 80 years, and uh, that's the time when people who knew the eyewitnesses were still alive. Mm -hmm. So he's got this stuff from people who knew the apostles, and he says that Mark got his message from Peter. He also says that Matthew um, <clears throat> wrote down a lot that Jesus, well, it depends on how you translate the Greek word logia there, but possibly Jesus' teachings or possibly it could include narrative. But Matthew wrote down a lot of stuff. Other Gospels followed that. But he doesn't actually say that Matthew wrote first. We get that from Augustine especially. Mm. He says that Mark got his stuff from Peter. And since Matthew includes 90% of the material, 90% uh, of the paragraphs, but in shorter form than Mark, it seems like um, unless we're saying that Peter, the only stories he, he knew anything about were the stories that were already in Matthew's gospel, it seems a lot more likely that Matthew's gospel incorporates Mark's gospel just in con condensing the, the different stories rather than, uh, rather than the reverse. So I, I do think that, that uh, Mark wrote first and that um, Matthew and, and Luke made use of Mark. and But when we say the first gospel, there may be other other writings about Jesus that haven't survived. Sure. And in fact, I think Matthew probably wrote some stuff down about Jesus that may be in our current gospel of Matthew. But anyway, that's another, so another story. So why aren't there like the stories that we want to hear? In, I mean, like Jesus as a toddler, did he get spanked? His first prom, like what, like what, like high school Jesus, like what, what, did, what happened there? And why don't we get that part of the story? Mark's giving us the backstory. He's not giving us all the backstory. He's not doing it for our curiosity. Yeah. But, but what led toward the cross? So he's going to start with Jesus' baptism under John. And actually, you look at the sermons in Acts often, they start as they're preaching the good news. They start with the story of John preparing the way. Mm. And that's really important because it also connects Jesus to the Old Testament. Um, all four Gospels quote Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, who is the Lord in, in that passage? It's, it's Yahweh. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mark also quotes from, from Malachi, actually so, so do Matthew and Luke, but in, a, in different locations. But um, Malachi also talks about preparing the way of Yahweh. But the Gospels apply that to John preparing the way for Jesus. Mm -hmm. So right up front, Mark is telling the biblically literate members of his audience something about Jesus' identity. And that'll come out also when John is announcing the one coming after him is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Well, that's full of Old Testament illusions. In the Old Testament, who can pour out God's Spirit? Mm -hmm. Only God. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, up front, the biblically literate will know who Jesus is, mm -hmm. and other people He's will find out along the way. Yeah. Okay, I've heard you a number number of times uh, compare Mark to the other Gospels, mm -hmm. and uh, and so 
I've also heard you point out a, a distinctive here and there, and you too, in one of your questions, asking about the the word immediately, and you called Mark a very dramatic, action-packed gospel. There's less teaching, whereas Matthew has five long discourses. There are zero long discourses in Mark. No, well, that's not true. You have the parables in Mark 4. The parables. And you have okay. the, the um, Olivet Discourse in chapter 13. Okay. Yes. Okay. I'm thinking just on the scale of Matthew. Yeah, on the scale of Matthew. Uh, yeah. So, um, when you compare it, yeah. <laughs> Mark falls a so, little short. But I, the question where I'm, I'm directing this toward are the distinctives in Mark. What are What is unique about Mark's gospel besides some of the things that we've mentioned? Yeah, like if someone's like, why would I read Mark? I've got Matthew. Yeah. Right? Like well, convince I, someone to read Mark. Yeah, I've got, I have so much more information in Matthew. Yeah. I just go there. Right. Yeah. yeah. Actually, we just have a couple, a couple uh, miracle narratives in, in Mark that aren't picked up in Matthew. Um, very, very interesting. The parallels between them. The, one of the, one of the healings of the blind, and the healing of the deaf man in uh, seven. What is it? Thirty-two to thirty-seven. But the 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 blind man in eight twenty-two to twenty-six or so. Um, those are left out by Matthew. Although Matthew may compensate. He's got double healings of blind blind people. And, uh, he's got double demoniacs too for the legion, but um, but there are debates about why why those differences. But having having said that, I mean Mark isn't distinctive because of what he includes. A lot of the early church fathers, they kind of, you know, they, they didn't show as much interest in Mark because they were interested in mining what the Gospels say about Jesus, and so much of it recurs in Matthew, and they, they weren't interested in all the details that Matthew leaves out. Uh, well, sometimes, I mean, with the paralytic let down through the roof, Matthew leaves out the roof scene. But uh, is, is he against destroying private property? I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but, but what's distinctive about Mark is what he does with his stories. I mean, the, uh, you've got the Messianic secret. It's still there in the other Gospels. But why the secret people weren't ready for a crucified messiah and just i mean the the way mark ends it's just it's full of paradox it's like you've got a few acted parables like the prophets did in the old testament you've got a few acted parables of jesus you've got jesus parables in mark uh, 4 which to the crowds where there's no explanation they function like riddles but Mark's gospel as a whole is parabolic in shape. By that, I don't mean that it's not a true story. It is a true story. But it's, it functions as a riddle where only those who press in as disciples to hear the true meaning are going to get the meaning. Mm. He, doesn't, he doesn't include the resurrection appearances. You know, he, he ends with all the way through Jesus says, don't tell anybody, and people go tell. And then finally, the, the uh, angel says, go go tell everybody that Jesus is no longer dead. And it says, and they went their way and they told nobody because they were scared. And you know that they, you know that it can't end there because how would you get the information for the Gospel of Mark if it ended there? And you know it can't end there because, I mean, when Mark speaks of the beginning of the Gospel, People have already heard the gospel, so they already know Jesus died and rose. So 
you know it doesn't end there, but why does Mark end with the shock ending? I mean, there were a lot of works in antiquity that just ended without a conclusion, but this one is kind of a, a shock ending that fits the shocks you get all the way through with the immediate lease mm. and with the riddles. And it's like, are you going to be a disciple? Are you going to follow? Wow. Are, it's are, the are, gone with the wind of <laughs> the New Testament. You know, like you, you think at the end of the first VHS tape, I'll never go hungry again. You're like, oh, it's got to get better. Like there's got to be a good conclusion. You put that second cassette in and you're like, dude, this chick is messed up. There's no redemption arc on this lady at all. And the whole narrative is going, are you going to be the spoiled brat who goes all the way through and marries for power? And you're you're looking, have you seen Gone with the Wind? You look, no, okay. <laughs> he looks it's, so confused. It's a four-hour movie. Bro. It's so long. Don't waste your time with it. It's really heartbreaking. But, but that's the kind of thing is it's saying, these guys are hard-headed. These guys are hard-headed. Are you going to be the hard-headed guy? That's why I didn't want to watch the Titanic. I mean, uh, once you know yeah. the ending, you know, it's like, We've got enough depressing things in life. <laughs> so, so have you given us enough preview with that answer that you think that the uh, the additional resurrection appearance at the end of oh, Mark... You, no, no, no. they got to watch till episode 16 for okay, that one. Man. Episode don't, 16. Don't spoil Hang it. on for that one, Yeah, guys. no, no. Hang on for that one. Well, I think we were about to tie this one up. I, I, I do I, have... Yeah, go ahead. I do have a question now. Yeah. Okay. It looks like we both have one more question. So um, I think it would be helpful for our viewers if you could maybe just give us somewhat of a, a verbal outline of the general progression of the book. I mean, I, I know you, your memory, you can just boom. <laughs> no, not as long as I don't ask you about Gone with the Wind, we're good. Yeah. So <laughs> as long as we're on the Bible. Yeah. yeah there you go. But just a general progression where we're starting where we're headed to, and just kind of the path to get there. Yeah, well, the plot starts with everything being cool and then descends into Jesus has some enemies, but no problem, you know, he's still working miracles, the crowds are still following him, meanwhile the enemies are accumulating, and finally it goes to the cross. I mean, that's the that's the general outline, but and meanwhile the disciples are clueless, uh, but I, I didn't know if there is there, you know, is there a geographic way of going about it? Is there a uh, chronological? Is there a thematic approach to his telling of the you story? Could say that the first half of it is in Galilee. The second half is moving towards Jerusalem and in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem. Um, if you want to do the geographic, he actually moves around a lot. But yeah, but Mark doesn't have multiple journeys to Jerusalem like John does. Mm. I, I think because Mark wants to keep it you know, clean. Um, Matthew's a neat freak in a different way, very structured. But when I when I say these things like neat freak, I'm just, I'm using, I mean, I, yeah. I don't mean to be you, disrespectful. They were inspired in what they were doing. Well, I compared it to Gone with the Wind, so I think you're doing oh. much better than I did. Um, my, my question was, if we have all these overarching themes that we understand, then how is that going to help us? What are we looking for? Someone watches this video and maybe they're going through a home group or something. They watch this video and they're reading the gospel of Mark. And as we go through, they're doing a chapter each with each of these sessions. You know, what should they be looking for when they read chapter one, two, three, and four, if we know these themes? Yeah. Let, let, let me, let me uh, finish out that one. Sorry. That yeah, on, yeah, yeah. on that one. Um, chapter, chapter one, 
yeah, Jesus does certain things in secret, like in the wilderness with, the, you know, this conflict with the devil. But then he comes into a synagogue and immediately the devil brings the conflict right out into the open. You know, there's no way people talk about the messianic secret and he tries to keep things secret. He doesn't really have a choice. He's kind of put on the spot mm -hmm. in the synagogue where the <laughs> demon challenges him. Um, but then, you know, with with Peter's mother-in-law, that's but word gets around. Everybody's coming to him. So, you know, again, he's on the spot in chapter two. But uh, with with the paralytic let down through the roof, I mean, what's he going to do? Say, yeah, come back later. I'll talk with you. Don't tell anybody. About talk this. to my people. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, when when possible, you know, he keeps it a secret. But or certain things actually, he kind of provokes the scribes and the Pharisees in chapter three. But they've already been after him. So chapters two and three, you have controversy narratives with increasing conflict. Some of it is around food. Um, a lot of it is around traditions. And chapter four, you have parables about the kingdom and, and, and dealing with the secret of the kingdom. The secret is given to you, the disciples, not just to the 12, but to all those who press into the inner circle. So if you really want to get the, the lowdown, if you really want to find out the answer to the riddles, press into the inner circle. Be, be part of that inner circle. But to those who are outside, they're just going to get a riddles. And part of the reason is the mystery of the kingdom is the, the mystery of the good news of the kingdom. And the good news of the kingdom is the same good news that we preach, the good news Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm -hmm. Except at that point it was a mystery because the mystery is that the king whose kingdom we're proclaiming is a crucified Messiah. Hmm. And people weren't ready for that, as you see when you get to chapter 8. So uh, another way that the gospel is often divided, I know I didn't finish that way, but another way the gospel is often divided is the first half of the gospel, people are saying, who is Jesus? And finally, chapter 8, Peter says, you're the Messiah. And okay, they got it. But then Peter doesn't understand he's the crucified Messiah. It takes him the rest of the gospel to get that. Wow. Okay. So figuring out who he is. Okay. He's the Christ. Now he's not the kind of Christ you thought he would be. Yeah. Okay. So if, basically there are different theories about the structure of it. Which one do you fall on? Uh, the one I said. Um, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, you can, you can divide it and subdivide it. Matthew is pretty easy for that, I think. But Mark, like sometimes there's overlap among sections, but usually people will do Two and three are the controversy narratives. Um, chapter four, you get parables. You've got a series of miracle narratives in five through, well, actually, you have, some will argue, a couple series of miracle narratives. But anyway, you have miracle narratives up through, oh, you still have, usually they say up through eight, but you do have one in, in chapter nine, verses 14 through 29, uh, with the, the demonized uh, boy. Um, and then, actually, 8.27 through 10.52 uh, 10 are often grouped together. But often, scholars will bracket, uh, bracket it starting with 8.22, because 8.22 through 26, you have the healing of a blind man. And then in 10.46 to 52, you have the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Uh, but then you have 
some people will say the passion narrative starts in chapter 11. In, in any case, they get to they get to the vicinity of Jerusalem in chapter 11, um, and you have more conflict narratives, uh, the end of 11 through chapter 12, uh, with different elites, and then the uh, Olivet Discourse with the destruction of the temple, and I believe also talking about the second coming. I know that's that gets controversial there on Mark, especially. You've written a book about that. <laughs> And then, um, and then, fourteen through fifteen, definitely, you're in the passion narrative, hmm. and the anticlimax in chapter sixteen. Can we briefly just touch on before we wrap up on how those inform us when we're reading? What do we? What would you encourage the reader to look for as they're reading through the gospel? Look for the increasing tension, and actually, you can look for a couple con contradictory themes because some people who want to emphasize the cross. They want to play down Jesus' miracles, mm -hmm. and that's that's not what's going on. But God's power is being demonstrated. Jesus comes as a servant. He's healing people. He's delivering people. He's stilling storms to protect people. He's feeding multitudes. All Jesus' miracles, with the potential exception of the cursing of the fig tree and the... Uh, the swine going into the lake, although I think that was the demon's fault, because um, he's delivering a man. That's more important than the swine, even 2,000 of them. They're not, they're not kosher anyway. Um, so I think um, we, we need to see both themes, and we need to recognize also that Jesus is calling his disciples to follow in both mm -hmm. ways. So you see this theme of faith, not always, but sometimes with the miracles, he commends them for their faith. He says to the guy in like 923 or so, uh, just just believe. And well, actually, he says that to, to Jairus also. Is it Gamaliel? No, Jairus. Gamaliel. Yeah, yeah, with the daughter. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and then possibly with the stilling of the storm, like, why did you wake me up? Where's your faith? Yeah. You know, but that might just mean, you know, how could you think it would sink with me in it? But, um, but then, you know, with the the fishes and the loaves, look, we went through this twice. You guys still don't understand. You still don't get it, like you said in, in chapter eight. And then in chapter eleven, verses twenty-two and twenty-three, um, when Peter's shocked, you know, whoa, the fig tree you you cursed is is withered, and Jesus is like, you're shocked by that, huh? Uh, he says. Uh, have have faith in God. Yeah. If 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 you would just say to this mountain, "Be removed," and be cast into the sea, it'll be done for you. And goes on to to talk more about prayer. So he's he wants the disciples to emulate his power, but for the right purposes, for serving others. But he also wants them to emulate. He's going to the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. And then in chapter 13, this is what's going to happen. On, on account of my name, you're going to be betrayed. You're going to be brought before synagogue uh, courts and before uh, before governors and so on for my name's sake. So kind of a prelude to the passion narrative and uh, all the disciples forsook him and fled, 1450, mm -hmm. 51 and 52 shows the guy who even 
you know, left his cloak behind. <laughs> he was in such a hurry to get away. All these people said, we're going to follow you all the way to the cross. Uh, you know, instead of abandoning their livelihoods like they did in Mark 1, 16 through 20, or, mm -hmm. or Levi, the, uh, the tax collector in chapter 2, now they abandon everything to get away from Jesus as fast as they can. And, and the same term is used for the women fleeing in 16.8, you know, who are the closest thing to heroes we've got so far. Mm -hmm. you know, the only hero we've got in this gospel is Jesus. We all need him. And, and yet he calls us to follow to the cross. And Peter, he does the best of, of the others. I, I really see this as his, his story, in a sense, about Jesus and about his own failures looking back and... Um, but they all forsook him and fled, and I think the where the gospel ends is, okay, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. What kind of disciple are you going to be? Yeah, so it's those those themes that we keep coming back to are, who is he? Do you have faith in him? And he went to the cross, or are you going to go to the cross? Like those are those kind of main take-home points. So when you see, okay, there's persecution that arises, and then well, I follow that guy, so I'm, I'm going to come under that, you know? And, and when those kinds of persecutions arise, where is my faith going to be? And, I, and who is he? And that, that, that connection between who he is as the Son of God and will I have faith, I mean, that's, that's connective tissue right there. I like that. That's and really it, helpful. Expect, expect to share his power and expect to share his sufferings. As, as Paul puts it, um, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship, and the fellowship of, of his sufferings. sufferings. They all go together. Come on. Those who suffer with him will reign with him. Uh, we want to share his power, but we also need to be ready to... Oh, and that's in chapter 6 also. I mean, Jesus sends out uh, 6, 7 to 13. He sends the disciples out on the same mission for which he called them in chapter 3, sends them out. Verse 30, they come back and they report to him. And smack dab in between is the death of Jesus' forerunner at the hands of a worldly ruler. Mm -hmm. And so it puts it in context. Scholars often call those Mark and Sandwiches, where he'll start with something, pick it up later, and in between, he'll tell you something else that sheds light on how you're to read the rest of it. I hope you've enjoyed that episode on the Gospel of Mark with Dr. Craig Keener. If you want to go back and watch former episodes that we've done, there's a playlist right here, uh, or you can watch the very next chapter, which will be listed right here. If you've been blessed by this episode or other episodes we've done, consider giving. There are links in the description. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.